0: Thank you to Sangam Talks uh, for this opportunity to speak to all of you today. I'll be sharing uh, a presentation called out from my doctoral program and I have categorized the presentation into uh, a couple of parts. We'll first have an introductory survey followed by the Madras Survey of Indigenous Education, which the British colonial authorities conducted in 1822-25. We'll also have a close look at how popular education was faring in England in the early 19th century. Then we will look at the growth of uh, the still surviving indigenous schools in Madras Presidency and the growth of the government system, educational system during 1855 to 80, and ultimately we will look how the community profile of boys studying in the primary schools under the government system in Madras presidency changed between 1885 and 1935. This I believe will give us a lot of insights into the educational deprimation that emerged through the colonial policies of the British government. And I am certain that what we see in Madras Presidency through the data left behind by the colonial administrators will be more or less the same in other regions of India. In Bengal Presidency, in Bombay, similar surveys were done there also. And it would be worthwhile to look At those surveys of the Indian nationalism during the late 19th and the early 20th century, it was noticed that uh, large sections of Indian society had little or no participation in the modern education system. From the decadal census recurrence, it also became very clear that a large uh, number of communities had a very low percentage of literates and even lower percentage of those who were literate in English. And English literacy on those day, in those days, even it is today now, was an absolute prerequisite for a government job or a professional career. The British administrators and scholars, they, however, attributed all this to the low status, social, economic, as well as educational, which these communities allegedly had in traditional Indian society for millennia. Now, some of our leaders at the helm of the national movement in those days clearly expressed a differing view. Mahatma Gandhi was the foremost as the most articulate amongst them. In a speech uh, he made at the Royal Institute of International Affairs Chatham House in London on 20th October 1931, Gandhiji was then visiting England. Uh, to attend the second roundtable conference, he he asserted that uh, the literacy levels in India that prevailed uh, 50 or 100 years ago were better than what was prevailing then under the British system of education. So he drew his audience's attention to the widespread indigenous system of education, which was functioning even after the onset of the British rule in the early decades of the 19th century. And referring to this education as the beautiful tree, Gandhiji said the British uprooted this system and left it to wither away over time. Our state, Gandhiji claimed, would revive the old village schoolmaster and dot every village with a school, both for boys and girls. Now, Gandhiji's statement uh, challenged the very basis of the so-called civilizing mission of British rule in India. He squarely laid the blame for the prevalence of literacy amongst the Indian masses to the policies of the British rule. This started a long debate. for want of time, we are not going into this debate today. And subsequently, after independence, a detailed and rigorous substantiation of Gandhiji's pronouncements on the nature and extent of indigenous education system in India in the early 19th century was presented by the renowned Gandhian thinker and historian Dharampal, in his uh, will be celebrating his birth centenary in. Uh, Two years' time in his book, The Beautiful Tree, which was published in 1983. So, in his book, Dharampalji has reproduced all the available original documents pertaining to a detailed survey of the indigenous system of education that was conducted in Madras presidency during 1822 and 1825. Dharampalji's book, we'll see that. It brought to light, for the first time, the crucial fact that in most districts of Madras Presidency at that time, the majority of the students, in fact, the overwhelming majority of the students, as many as 70% of them or more, hailed from what we call the non-Drija communities, that is the Shudras. And these are termed as other castes in the reports of 1822-25. And they today, to, they today correspond to communities which are included amongst the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes of India. Dharampalji also highlighted the fact that the indigenous system of education in Madras Presidency in 1825 was more widespread and vibrant than the nascent system of public education that was at that time emerging In England. We'll also have a look at this in the subsequent slides how the system of education, public system of education, started evolving in England from the end of the 18th century. Now, during 1820 to 1835, following instructions from colonial authorities in London, various provincial governments in India carried out detailed surveys of the indigenous education that prevailed in their areas, in their provinces. A survey was conducted in some select districts of Bombay Presidency. First it was conducted in 1824-25 and another survey was later conducted during 1828-29. In 1835, uh, Governor General Lord William Benting, he lived. Uh, he gave an instruction, and William Adam, uh, Baptist missionary agent, he conducted a survey of indigenous education in five different districts of Bengal Presidency of those days, and these districts were Birbhum, Badwan, South Bihar, Tirhut, and parts of Murshidabad. Adam personally also carried out a detailed. Statistical Survey of uh, the area under the Thana of Nator in Rajshahi District. Rajshahi is today in the Bangladesh region. And the survey in uh, Madras Presidency, which was perhaps the most detailed one, was conducted during 1822 and 25. in our presentation today we shall be concerned with the results of the extensive survey of the indigenous education system conducted in the Madras Presidency during this time. Now, the Board of Revenue of Madras Presidency in 1822, March, they left a communication instructing the collectors in their various districts to carry out a survey of the indigenous system of education in their respective districts. So the information sought included, it was a tabulation where the total population was included. (coughs) The number of schools and colleges in each districts were also to be tabulated. And the collectors were asked to give the number of boys and girls studying in these schools and colleges under each of the following community heads. So there were nine community heads and the scholars were supposed to be divided in them. You had the Brahmana scholars from the Brahmana community, from the Kshatriya, from the Vaishya, from the Shudra. You had scholars from all other castes, then grand total Hindu scholars followed by Muslim scholars and total number of Hindu and Muslim scholars following uh, a tabulation of the total population. So now, uh, from the 1822-25 survey, we see that there is no clear uh, specification as to what was meant by the category of all other castes. It was perhaps left to the discretion of the various district collectors to include under this category. I think all those who, as per their sources of information, did not come under the traditional Varna classification. And it must have included most of those who are classified today as scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. The detailed information uh, that was provided by the various collectors of Madras Presidency was summarized in a communication uh, on dated uh, 21st February uh, 1825, from the Board of the Revenue to the Chief Secretary to the government at Fort St. George in Madras. Now, some of the data of this survey, including extracts from the minutes of (coughs) Thomas Monroe, who was the governor of Madras at that time, got published as part of the House of Commons paper. In in Volume 9, it was included in 1831-32. However, we see that the detailed district-wise data on the community profile of students, it was neither published in any government reports nor in any scholarly investigations on the subject till the publication of The Beautiful Tree by Dharampalji in 19. Now, uh, you see here, it's very interesting to look at the minutes by Governor Sir Thomas Munro on the results of the Madras survey. Uh, Thomas Munro's minutes is dated 10th March uh, 1826. He writes, it is remarked by the Board of Revenue that of a total population of two and a half millions, there are only about uh, 1,88,000 or 1 in 67 receiving education. This is true of the whole population, but not as regards the male part of it. So half of the population will be male. And if we recall, the male population between the ages 5 and 10 years, which is the school-going age, then the period uh, in which the boys uh, will generally be school is assumed to be at one-ninth of the total population, of the total male population, or one-eighteenth of the total population. So it will give a figure of about 7 lakh-odd number of boys of school-going age. And if all the males above 10 years of age were educated, Uh, That will be the number, but the number actually attending the schools from the surveys is found to be 1,84,000 or little more than one-fourth of that number. So Monroe estimates that I am, however, inclined to estimate the proportion of the male population who receive school education to be nearer to one-third than one-fourth of the whole because we have no returns from the provinces of the numbers taught at home is very important of the numbers taught at home. In Madras, that number taught at home is about five times greater than that taught in the schools. Here, uh, you see, we come now to a tabulation of the boys studying in the indigenous schools in about, during this time, 1822-25. This tabulation is divided. The districts have been grouped. Uh, as per the various linguistic regions, we have the Oriya-speaking, the Telugu-speaking, the Kannada-speaking, the Malayalam-speaking and the Tamil-speaking regions of Madras Presidency. Madras Presidency in those days was a huge chunk of area of South India. And here, we find that there were about close to 11,500 schools, and there were about a lakh and 50,000 students studying in this 11,000 odd schools spread across the length and breadth of the presidency. And in the last column, we have tabulated the percentage of boys belonging to the age group of five to 10 years who are receiving education in the schools. This does not include the number of boys who are being taught privately at home. Now, I'll just <clears throat> tell you or give, give you the bif- description of the linguistic regions of Madras Presidency. The Orya-speaking region of Madras Presidency uh, comprised of the lone district of Ganjam. The Malayalam-speaking region comprised, of again, of the district of Malabar. Vishakapatnam, Rajmundri, Machilipatnam, Guntur, Nellore, and Kadapa districts they constituted the Telugu-speaking region. Bellary and Sri they comp- comprised of the Kannada-speaking region, and the Tamil-speaking region of the presidency included the districts of uh, North Arcot, South Arcot, Chengalpattu, Tanjavur, Trichyapalli. Madurai, Tirunelveli, Coimbatore, Salem, and Madras districts. So this table clearly shows that the percentage of boys of school-going age who were studying in schools in Madras Presidency as a whole turns out to be about 21.5% as we have tabulated here. The table also shows that the percentage of boys of school going age who are studying in the schools in the Tamil speaking region of Madras presidency was about 25 percent. In Telugu speaking, it is 17 percent. In Malayalam speaking, it is about 24 percent. In Oria, it is 16 percent. In Canada, it is about 13 and a half percent. The data uh, of presented in summarized in this table presents a completely different picture see as uh, regards uh, the community participation which we will look at now in this table okay uh, as regards the participation by various communities in the indigenous education system it shows that all sections of the society were being instructed in the schools in fact the majority of the students of the districts were from the non-Dvija. So the non-Dvija Hindus, they comprised, uh, if we see, of the Sudras and the other castes, they constituted about 65% or nearly two-thirds of the students studying in the schools. So in uh, the Telugu-speaking districts, Uh, They were about 39%, but they were much higher at 54% in Malayalam speaking Malabar. In Oriya speaking Ganjam district, they were about 64%. In Kannada speaking Bellary and Srirangapatnam, they were about 74%. But in the Tamil speaking region of Madras Presidency, they were uh, overwhelming 77% of the total student population. This is something very, very interesting. Another crucial fact that uh, emerged from the reports of the various collectors was that there was almost a parallel system of uh, education, where the children were educated at uh, homes. However, it was only the collector of Madras district, LGK Murray, who gave detailed information on the number of boys who were so instructed at home. And according to Murray, we will see in the next table, there were about 5,500 boys who were studying in 322 schools of Madras districts. But there were more than 26,000 boys who were being instructed at homes. So the number of boys who were instructed at homes in the district of Madras were nearly five times the number of those. Who are instructed in the schools. So, we have presented the information in this table, as you can see, and the overwhelming majority of boys, nearly five times they are being educated at home, compared to the total number being educated in the schools. So, writing uh, his minute uh, about a year year later, uh, Monroe seems to be intent on downplaying the fact that there were a large number of students who were receiving instruction uh, at home, and uh, he therefore makes the uh, you know invidious uh, suggestion that there is probably some error in the report in the number collected by. Uh, the collectors, and uh, but he has to uh, concede the fact that the number privately taught in the provinces does certainly not approach this rate. And uh, he says, I am, however, inclined to estimate the proportion of the male population who receive uh, school education to be nearer uh, to one-third than one-fourth of the whole because we have no returns from the provinces of the numbers taught at home. Now, even this is what Monroe is saying, but today, even if we assume that the number of boys instructed at home was on the average only about twice the number of those instructed in the schools, as it was the case for all the communities in the case of Madras district, district then it would result that nearly two thirds, or around 65% of the boys of school going age, that is boys between the age 5 and 10 years, would be under instruction, either in the schools or at home uh, instead of the one-thirds that's suggested by Munro. Now, the collectors have left behind some other very interesting uh, data on uh, the duration of uh, instruction in the indigenous schools. And uh, we see There's various collectors from Rajamandri, Masulipatnam, Kadapa, Nellore, Arkot, Tanjavur, Tishurapalli, Madurai, Coimbatore, Salem, Madras. They have left behind a tabulation showing the average duration of schools is between five and eight years in most of the districts. There were also uh, the collectors have left behind data on the institutions of higher learning, uh, institutions of higher learning in Madras Presidency uh, during the same period. And this tabulation tells us that there were about 1,094 colleges or institutions of higher learning that were uh, functioning around Madras in and around uh, throughout the length and breadth of Madras Presidency. And in these 1,094 colleges, there were about 5,431 students, pupils studying in these various colleges. And in this table, uh, we have tabulated uh, the interesting fact that uh, tells us uh, what were the different subjects that were taught. Under the private tutors in Malabar. Dharampalji has left behind this uh, very interesting data on higher learning that was happening privately in the district of Malabar, in the house of the senior scholars. And we see that in this table, we see that you see there were about 195 Shudra students and 510 students from other castes who were studying astronomy in the homes of the private tutors. Okay, There were about 1,500, 1,600 students huh, who were studying in various um, subjects under private tutors in the Malabar district. Now, when we uh, consider this data with what was the scope of popular education in England and Wales, the comparison becomes very interesting. Uh, I will offer my first quote from <clears throat> the 1855 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 8, page 746. Uh, so I quote uh, Popular education in England is almost entirely the creation of the present century, this 19th century. Before 1801, the total number of public and private schools was only 3,363. In 1851, there were about 44,836 schools. So the expansion in the school system was actually in the first half of the 19th century. So if we go back to the history of the popular education movement in England and Wales, we find that in 1781, again from Encyclopedia Britannica, Mr. Reichs of Gloucester with difficulty collected the first Sunday school and in 1851, the stu- they numbered uh, 23,000 odd. In 1818, the scholars attending the day schools were about 6.75 lakhs. And in 1851, they were about 21.5 lakhs. Similarly, we have <clears throat> data on the Sunday schools also. But nevertheless, the state of education is much below what it ought to be, both its quantity and quality. So this is a graphic representation of what is happening with popular education in England and Wales during the period 1792 to 1851. We assume that in 1792, there were about 40,000 uh, students studying in the day schools And this number (coughs) comes to about uh, forty, almost 46 lakhs students uh, in in 1851. But the majority of them are studying only in the Sunday schools in 1851. More than 50% of them are attending in the Sunday schools. And the instruction in the Sunday schools were limited uh, only to moral instructions on on sunday it was uh, one day school weekly school now uh, this is again a very interesting observation by prince albert the prince consort husband of queen victoria so while opening a conference on national education in on 22 january june 1857 he says in 1801 there were in England and Wales, about 2,876 public schools. And there were 487 private schools. The number increases in 1851. uh, There were about almost uh, 15 and a half thousand public schools and uh, private schools also, the number goes up to 30 and a half thousand teaching about twenty-one and a half lakh students, huh? but uh, it goes on saying the analysis of the scholars with reference to the ne- length of the time allowed for their school tuition shows that 42% of them have been at school for less than 1 year. 22% during 1 year, 15% during 2 years, 9% during 3 years. I leave it to you to judge what the results of such an education can be. This is the state of popular education in England and Wales in 1850s. Now, this is something even more interesting. This is the class composition of the students in the British education system in England and Wales in 1833-1851. Very interesting. The population of England and Wales, the census of 1851, divides the population of England and Wales into two groups. We have the middle and upper classes population, and we have the laboring classes population. We find that uh, even in 1851, more than 50% of the students of school-going age from the laboring classes were still outside the school system, whereas the elite boys, students from of school-going age, from the middle and upper classes, were in the school system. The English system was very elitist in nature. And this is the system they wanted to build in India, over the ruins of the beautiful tree that Gandhiji was talking about. So, 85, as per the census of Great Britain of 1851, in the second quarter, Of the 18th century, about uh, 19th century, about 85% of the population of England and Wales constituted the laboring classes, while only 15% of the population comprised the middle and the upper classes. So, uh, I've already mentioned about this that uh, you see, this fact clearly shows that the state of popular education in Madras presidency in 1825 was indeed significantly better than what prevailed in England around 1800. So now we will have a look at the statistics of how the indigenous schools and the department schools continue to fare in Madras presidency between 1851 and 81. The departmental schools are the government schools. And the indigenous schools are the locally aided uh, village schools, which were aided and supported by the local people. So in um, 1822-25 survey told us that there were about uh, 11,500 schools. We see in 1855-56, this number has gone up, and there are about 12,500 schools. 12,500 schools, almost unaided indigenous schools in Madras Presidency, where about a lakh and 61,000 students are studying. Compared to that, the government schools are very small in numbers. There are only 83 83, uh, government schools where about 2,000 students are studying. The indigenous schools continue to survive 15 years down the line, in 1870-71, there are about 12,000 similar number of indigenous schools. Uh, The government schools marginally increase over 15 years. The students double in the government schools. There's a slight decrease in the number of students studying in the indigenous schools. But it is only in 1881-82 that when the indigenous schools are brought under the government system by what is called the grant in aid scheme, that the number of students go up. okay, so, And substantially, uh, the, uh, in this 10-year period, we see a rise in the number of uh, the government primary schools also. But interestingly, uh, the indigenous schools Almost 3,000 indigenous schools continue to survive towards the last decades of the 19th century with more than half a lakh students still studying in them. Okay, so so it is estimated that uh, you know in 1881 82 there were about 11,264 indigenous schools uh, where about 2,39,000 students were studying. Of this, Uh, 8,436 schools were brought under the Directorate of Public Instruction during the previous decades and uh, 2,800 Indigenous schools still survived outside the departmental system and this fact that uh, the Indigenous schools which contributed in a major way to the expansion of the governmental education system was also acknowledged by the report of the Madras Provincial Committee to the Education Commission of India in 1882. So if the quotation is, uh, it appears from these two statements that 8,436 schools of an indigenous characters with about a lakh and 85,000 people have been brought into connection with the department. The great increase in the number of schools connected with the Department of Education has been due Mainly to the gradual absorption of such indigenous schools, so here, in this table we see we give you uh, show you the growth of uh, how the different communities or the community profile of boys who are receiving instruction between eighteen sixty one and eighteen. So we have tabulated a couple of years, selected years here between 1861 and 1880, and uh, we see that uh, these are the total number of students who were studying in in, in the various, uh, you have the, we don't have the numbers for the uh, students belonging, uh, separate numbers for the student belonging to the scheduled cast and scheduled tribes uh, before. 1872 73. So, even in 1872 73, there were hardly any scheduled caste or scheduled tribe students in the government system. Okay, it's only uh, we see that after the incorporation of the indigenous schools uh, in, in Madras presidency that this number will go up. Okay, so, but another interesting fact is the High percentage of the presence of uh, native Christian students. The native Christian students were almost 8%, 7.5% and there were an equal number of Muslim students uh, of the total number of students. Uh, uh, They were more than uh, the proportion of their population. So here, uh, we give you the breakup of the Hindus, the Muslims and the native Christians and the total we have tabulated uh, the boys of age group 5 and 10 years and what percentage of they form of the total population, the number of male students and also the percentage of total of the number of male students and the gross enrollment ratio. So we see that in 1884-85, of the Hindu students, the gross enrollment ratio is about 14%. This increases to 24.5% in uh, 1899-1900. Of the Muslims in 1884-85, the gross enrollment ratio is about 19%. It increases to 53% by 1900. Of the native Christians, it is about... 41% in 1885 it goes up to 90 uh, 59% in the 1900s okay in subsequently in 19 during 1921 22 we see that the hindus are about 40% and in 1934 35 they come to almost 58% the muslims see uh, rise from about to almost uh, 100%, they're at about 98%, almost 98% of the Muslim boys of school-going age are receiving instruction in the schools, in the government schools by 1934-35. Almost all boys of the native Christians community are receiving schools in the government schools, whereas about 58% of the Hindu boys of school-going age of 5 to 10 years are in the government schools by about 1934-35. Okay. Now, amongst the Hindus, uh, here in these tables, we give you the data of the uh, Brahmanas, Vaishyas, and uh, what we would call the Scheduled Caste and the Scheduled Tribes. The figures for the SCs and STs are not available for but for subsequent years, they are available. So we see that uh, the Brahmins uh, uh, are about 50% of the Brahmin boys are in the school system of school-going age are in the school government school system in 84, 85 This number increases to about 77% by 1900. This goes to further 71% by 1922. And by 1935, we have almost all the Brahmin boys of school-going age uh, in the government school system. Of the Vaishyas and the Shudras, it's about 17% in 1884-85. This increases to about 26% by 1900. Then this goes to about 41% by 1921-22. And subsequently by 1934-35, we see about 57% of the boys of school-going age from the Vaishya and the Shudra communities are in the government ed- education system. Of the scheduled caste communities, it is about 11% in 1900. This goes up to 30% in 2122, and about 52% in 35. Of the scheduled tribes, it's again about 11.5% in 1900, about 28% in 1922. And in 1935, we see that about 89% of the boys of school going age from the scheduled tribe communities are in the school going age, of the total school going age, attending school. So what we saw there, that there was a notable increase in the gross enrollment ratio in primary education. During the first few decades, of the 20th century, as reported by the various reports of the DPI. DPI is the di- <coughs> Directorate of Public Instruction. For instance, <coughs> the aggregate GER of the boys of school go- studying in primary schools, they were reported to be about 63% in 1935 compared to the level of 27% in 1900. Of the Vaishya and the Shudras, the GER and of the SCs and STs, uh, we see that it was about uh, 56 uh, per, uh, about 57%, 52%, and almost 89%, respectively, in 1935, compared to the levels reported in 1900. However, the data on the enrollment of students in primary schools do not give us the correct picture of the number of students receiving an adequate basic education. This is mainly because of the fact that a vast number of the students did not study for full five years in the government primary schools. The reports, these reports of the DPI do not give regular data on the average number of students, uh, average number of years that each student studied or the dropout rates Though there are various estimates which show that the dropout rates were more than eighty percent between class one to class four in the 1920s, and this was, for instance, noted by Sir Philip Hartog, who states in his book "Some Aspect of Indian Education, Past and Present" in 1939 that of hundred boys in class one, only twenty-six were reading in class 4 in 1934-35. So therefore, we'll have to take recourse to the decadal census data on literacy to get a better estimate of the percentage of boys of school-going age from different communities who were receiving an adequate basic education so that they could be counted amongst literates. So this is the... Level of male literacy from the decadal census of we have tabulated the six census years from 1901 to 1950. We have given the general literacy and we have given the male literacy. So we see that the general literacy in 1901 was in 6.3%. And in the first census after independence in 1951, the general literacy was about 19.3%. The male literacy during the British period was from near about 12% in 1901 to 22% in 1941. In 1951, the male literacy was about almost 29% now you see uh, between nineteen twenty and thirty five we see the percentage of boys of age group of five to ten years who were enrolled in schools were reported to be in the range of forty three and a half percent to sixty two and a half percent but the male literacy levels reported in the censuses of nineteen forty one and fifty one uh, it it is clear that a vast majority of them dropped out uh, within a year or two of schooling. And the percentage of boys who received adequate basic education, so as to be counted as literate, was most likely in the range of 22.5% to 28.5% during this period, 1921 to 1935. We had earlier seen that the percentage of boys of school-going age who were receiving instruction in 1825, either in school in the schools or at home, was at least 65% or more. And hence, as was claimed by Mahatma Gandhi in his 1931 speech, Chatham House speech, in London, the presidency of Madras was clearly more illiterate in the 1930s than it was 100 years earlier in 1820s. Now, we'll again Take recourse to the decadal census of 1921. And we will see the census, the male uh, literacy by religion in Madras presidency in 1921. What we see here is that in 1921, the general literacy in Madras presidency was about 8.57% and male literacy was about 15.22%. Hindus' general literacy was 1828 and male Hindu literacy was about 15%. The Muslims' were general literacy for Muslims was at 938 and for Muslim males, it was 17, almost 17.5%. For Christians, it was very high. It was almost 18% general literacy and 23.5% male literacy in the Christian communities. Now, here we have tabulated a few communities who had male literacy of about 30% in 1920. And these communities had male literacy of more than 30% in 1930. We have the Brahmin communities, the Kannada, the Malayalam, the Oriya Brahmins, Tamil and Telugu Brahmins. And then we also had the Chetti, the Komati, Aryavishya, the Nair communities. Between 15 and 30 percent in Madras presidency male, male literacy in 1921, we have the Agamudians, the Ambatans, the Balija, the Devanga, we have the Indian Christians, the native Christians. Then we also have the Kaikolan, Singundar, Singuda Kshatriya, the Kallan community, the Kammalan, the Kamsala, Panchala and the Labai Muslims had a male literacy of 30%. The Nadars had a male literacy of 20%. We had the Saleh, the Tian, the Vaniyan, Vania Vaishyas, and the Velalas even had a male literacy of 24%. Now, these are the communities which had a male literacy between 7.5% and 15% in 1921. Here we had Ambalakaran, we had the Yadavas, Iluvan, Kalingi and Kalinji, the Kamma, Kapu, Kusavan, Mangala, the Muslim Mapila, the Maravan, the Vaniya Kshatriya, then the Telega and the Vandan community. Then below 7.5% there were several communities. We have tabulated some of them here as per the Decadal Census of 1921. We had the Billava, the Boya, the Gammala, the Golla, the Idiga, Kuravan. Mutracha, Ode, Sakala, Para, Velama communities and then we have male literacies of the scheduled caste and the scheduled tribes which were very abysmally low levels of male literacy as can be seen. We have tabulated the male literacy of some of the scheduled caste uh, the communities. The scheduled tribes uh, as a whole had a, a male literacy of less than mm, half a percent, and uh, for the scheduled cast, the male literacy was never more than 4%. So now we see that, you see, in this presentation, we have traced the changing community profile of boys uh, studying in Madras presidency during the period 1822-25. It is seen, you see, the 1822-25 survey of indigenous education has certainly showed us that there was a widespread, very widespread system of schools for the education, mostly of boys. And according to this survey, that we find that there were uh, 21 and a half percent of boys of school going age, that is, boys of 5 to 10 years, were getting educated in these schools. And a large number of students were instructed at home. The governor, the then governor, Thomas Munro, he estimates that about one third, or 33% of the boys of school going age were undergoing instructions, either in the schools or at home. But uh, the available data on the percentage of boys being instructed at home, what we find from the data left behind by the collector of Madras district, we find that at least two-thirds, or 65% of the boys of school-going age were studying either in the schools or at home. The survey also showed that the overwhelming majority of the boys who were studying in the schools, they hailed from the non-Vija communities. In the presidency as a whole, more than half of the students were Sudras, and 15% were from other communities, uh, namely what we would now include under the scheduled caste and scheduled tribes and the share of non-Dhijas was much higher at over 75% in the Tamil-speaking region of the Presidency. It is seen from the annual reports of the DPI, Department of Public Instruction. It's recorded that by the turn of the century, that is by 1900, about 27% of the boys of school-going age were studying in the primary schools and their enrollment ratio is reported to have gone up to 44% by 1920-21, and further to 63% by 1934-35. However, it is also reported that in 1920, more than 80% of the boys dropped out between classes 1 and 4, and these enrollment figures do not give a picture of what percentage of boys received adequate education, so had would be classed as literates. And the census of 1941 records that male literacy in the presidency was only around 22%. And this should be taken as a better indicator of the percentage of boys who were receiving any sort of adequate basic education, so as to be counted as literates in the early decades of the 20th century during the British rule. And comparing this with the much larger percentage of boys who were reported to be receiving basic education in Madras Presidency in 1825 under the indigenous system, we see that the claim made by Mahatma Gandhi in his lecture in 1931 that India was then more illiterate than it was 100 or 50 years ago. Seems entirely justified. Now, the data on community profile of students in primary schools show us that by 1934 35, almost all boys of school going age among the Christians and the Muslims were studying in primary schools. The same was true of the Brahmins among the Hindus, but only around 57 of the Vaishya and Shudra boys of school going age and 53%. Of the scheduled caste boys of school going age were enrolled in the primary schools. And given the high dropout rates, the actual percentage of boys of these communities who were receiving adequate basic instruction would have been really small, much smaller. And we get a much more adequate picture of the level of access to basic education amongst different communities from the decadal census data on the levels of male literacies achieved by various communities. The 1921 census tells us that 24% of the Christian males and 70% of the Muslim males were literates. The Hindu Brahmin male literacy was much higher at 59%. However, there were several Jatis and castes, many of them classed under the backward classes today, who recorded levels of literacy much lower than the average male literacy of 15%. 15% in particular most of the jatis which are classed under scheduled caste today's uh, reported mal- literacy levels below 5% the scheduled tribes as a whole reported an abysmally low literacy level of 0.4% so we see that nearly after 100 years of english education system around 1935 There were large sections of the population in the Presidency of Madras who reported very low levels of enrollment in primary schools and even abysmally lower levels of male literacy, which is a better indicator of the level of access enjoyed by them for adequate basic primary education. This situation persisted till the end of British rule in 1947. And it continues to be one of the major issues, major challenges that is being attended to by independent India.
1: I already have some questions asked by participants. So Mr. Vinod Kumar asks, what does literacy mean in indigenous education at the time of pre-colonial and two at the time of post-colonial? Uh, at post-colonial time, and see government education at British time? This is the question.
0: Well, uh, indigenous education, uh, we do not have uh, a literacy data on the indigenous education, uh, so to say, but uh, we see from the various records left by the various district collectors of Madras presidency that on an average students studied for about five to eight years in the indigenous schools and they were instructed in reading, writing and arithmetic in the in all the three hours so as to be counted at literates. And in once the decadal census started, The first census of India was conducted in 1871, and subsequently, every 10 years, the census was done. And people who could write their names, who could sign their names and speak, had a certain uh, proficiency in the language were counted to be literates. So this is uh, how it was classified between the pre-census time and in the post-census. Uh,
1: there is an, uh, another question asked by Prashant. What were the subjects that students studied in government schools of Madras presidency? It is surprising to know that a huge majority of Muslim boys were enrolled in schools. Was it religious education or secular education?
0: Now, the government schools did not provide religious education, uh, but I have actually not looked at the syllabus of what was being taught uh, in the government schools in the colonial period. That is a a different subject. I have limited my understanding to the community participation alone. I have really not looked, but I can, uh, there are interesting forest uh, data on what was being taught in the indigenous schools left by Various collectors, and we see that in the Indian schools in 1822-25, our students were uh, instructed in the regional languages. They were instructed in the civilizational lords, They were taught Hitopadesha, Ramayana, Rukmini Kalyanam. They were given moral instruction, cultural instruction. They were also instructed in grammar. They were instructed in arithmetic and uh, literature.
2: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Chaudhary. You've given us uh, a lot of data, very difficult to, you know, consume and absorb in short time. But then two points which have really come out. One, as somebody asked about this Muslim, uh, the percentage of Muslim uh, children. Yes. It is really interesting. I have gone through the discovery of India by Nehru and how in Bengal, the... The other muafi system, I believe, where uh, the the original schools were being given a lot of uh, endowments, and that was taken away by the company, and yeah. uh, those schools had to be literally shut down because the teachers were without any payment.
0: Yes,
2: that is how it was there, and in Bengal, I was I read again that the Bengal, U.P. and Bihar, the Muslims kept away from the education uh, scenario which the English later on provided. As But it's very strange that in South India, the Muslims and Christians had a predominant role in uh, attending schools, as you brought out in your essay. Uh, this say. is
0: very, very interesting. This is very intriguing. We have to look more deep into it, but uh, uh, I have a feeling that uh, the colonial policy seemed to have favored the education of the native Christians and of the Muslims. Perhaps there were more number of schools available for the education of the children of Muslim communities in places where they were concentrated compared to the number of Uh, schools available for the Hindu communities in in Madras Presidency. Bengal would be another interesting place, another interesting Presidency to look at, and uh, I'll be looking, uh, I'm planning to look at whatever data will be available from Bengal Presidency in the next uh, course of my work, and subsequently also at Bombay Presidency. The Madras presidency work has been a lot easier because uh, Dharampalji had brought to light this entire data and the documentation, the survey documentation of Madras has been very wide compared to the other two presidencies.
2: That's one small uh, question more. Uh, Were these government schools charging the the students for... uh, education yes. that might be one of the reasons why the scheduled caste and scheduled tribe children uh, were left out of the system i don't know uh, uh,
0: that is one reason the government schools were and then the indian communities did not find this kind of schools you know the schools the indians were used to a system of school which were espousing their 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 cultural and civilizational traditions so for a very long time they did not find themselves in in tune with the colonial schools that were started.
1: Uh, Sir, there is another question from Prashant. He asks, is there any data on the evaluation and selection criteria of students in indigenous schools? Again, in indigenous schools, how did the caste-based discrimination to whatever minimum levels it was present work out in the real-time classroom scenario where students of different castes apparently study together? And how much of this matches with the traditional idea of the Gurukul system?
0: I, I think that uh, uh, the desire to learn was uh, the only criteria. There was no other criteria. It's the desire to learn. Other the parents, it's a normal process. Like you, you, you have your Vidya Ramba, and you you go and attend the school on a on a holy day. That has been the hallmark. There was there was no categorizing or. You, you can't go and all that. There was no entrance exam. It was open to all. Uh,
1: the next question is, again, in indigenous schools, how did the caste-based discrimination, to whatever level it was present, it, how did the caste-based discrimination work out in real-time classroom scenario? Where... Well, I,
0: I, I will just uh, give an answer to this. Uh, so I was referring to this uh, survey by... William Adam in Bengal Presidency and his survey notes William Adam mentions that there were even teachers from the Chandala community. Okay, I hope this answers uh, your question. Uh, uh, If I were to say, I think think we were not a society practicing untouchability in the way it is made out to be.
3: Thank you, ma'am. Uh, so so yeah, basically that answers it. But uh, I was just asking, do we have any kind of uh, you know uh, statistical data uh, which would say that you know um, I mean or any any not exactly statistical data I can say like any data which would say is that uh, you know whatever we hear from stories of Ambedkar, you know that you know within the span of like hundred years there has been so much discrimination, and the data which you present, uh, you know, kind of key, you know. Uh, this displays a completely contrary picture to that is it because you know after the enactment of you know the criminal tribes act or whatever it is you know this uh, entire situation went out of proportion I mean what exactly could have happened uh, that you know within a span of 100 years that you know so much has changed
0: no, uh, you are right actually things would have changed in a span of 50 years and the picture that we see of Madras presidency in 1822-25 is a very dilapidated system because by 1822-25, large parts of Madras presidency would have been under direct British rule for at least 50 years. Most part of parts of Madras presidency would have been under British rule for about 50 years. And there would have been no support for the local society to thrive. So uh, this process would have started by, say, 1750 in Bengal and by similar time in Madras, and by 1800, the process would have wrecked havoc in most parts of India. And then the various colonial policy directives, like as you rightly pointed out, the enlisting of the criminal tribes and the other policy, colonial policy directives, the criminal laws and all that, they kept huge uh, portions of Indian society away from uh, our uh, polity and very functional polity and its institutions. So when you are away from your resources, I think 50 years or 100 years is a long time. In five or 10 years, a community can succumb. Uh,
3: there... Thank you, sir. Uh, just one more question. Uh, what I wanted to ask is uh, the indigenous schools that you had, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that you were talking about. The subjects that you had listed in the indigenous schools, uh, I, remem- I mean, if I remember correctly, there were some five or six subjects. There were astronomy, law, and so on.
0: Yeah, they, they uh, were in the, in the, in the co- institutions of higher education. Okay, in the, the, the higher education. Yeah, not in the schools. The schools okay. generally had uh, you know primary education in the local regional languages. Okay, And in the regional languages, they taught the local literature, They taught our ancient civilizational literature, and they instructed in arithmetic. They taught a bit of grammar, reading, writing, and all that.
3: Okay. Okay. So uh, just to add to that, sir, what exactly, I mean, where, I mean, where exactly were the schools, say, for example, which uh, taught about, you know, uh, say, for example, uh, Shilpa Shastra and things like that, where they're a part of the indigenous, you know, schools, because, you know, quite, uh, I mean, say, for example, construction of a temple, which would actually be uh, involve a lot of engineering or construction of bridges, or, you know, any uh, such uh, activity which would actually involve, you know, a lot of precise mathematical calculations and all those things. And we had temples being constructed like anywhere and everywhere in India, in the ancient times. So there should have been a huge numbers of, you know, uh, indigenous schools, which had taught these specific disciplines. Absolutely. So Absolutely. do we have any, uh, you know, what do you say, jhalak of that in uh, uh, the no, data that uh, we have from 1822?
0: That 1822-25 data, data does not give that kind of a jhalak. Okay, but but as as far as astronomy medicine as is concerned even from malabar where you know uh, kerala is so rich in ayurveda we do have uh, evidence of great many students studying in the colleges and these colleges were centered around a scholar okay what the data the larger data that i have presented is about primary education not everybody was interested to go for higher education. And higher education was not mandatory either. It was not a modicum for any job or anything. Okay. So this was happening. And uh, by, uh, you see, most of our traditional institutions after long years of war and invasion uh, had become dysfunctional by the early 19th century. So there were uh, many of them, but they were all hidden in bits and parts of India, of which uh, and even the British were not uh, interested in either in reviving them or even to make a passing reference of them. I have two questions on uh, uh, the Indigenous
2: education that you uh, uh, talked about now. Is there any data on uh, uh, woman education here? Because we have been told that right from ages uh, women have been uh, Uh, not given the opportunity to study, right? So, does Dharampal give us any hint about uh, uh, the number of women's uh, uh, female education in India?
0: Okay, Uh, see, uh, in the indigenous survey of 1822-25, we find there are very few women who are participating in the indigenous schools. But perhaps they were more getting educated at home in the schools at home, and then, hence, we have kept them outside our survey, our discussions today. So in the indigenous schools proper, there were very few women, but uh, the understanding is that most of them were getting educated at home. Even uh, this has been the case, even uh, with, with my grandmother, with my father's grandmother also, none of them were anyway less educated. They were all educated and they also were able to give proper primary education to their children. So without, you know, a backing and basis of home education, they would not have been able to achieve that. But there were some uh, women who were taking to higher education also, even at those times.
3: Thank you
1: i would like to know about the uh, uh, if there is any data about the caste composition in the uh, indige- in the schools that were attending that people were attending um, uh, or the or rather the home schooling that was being done during the british period which composed of nearly 65% of the people i mean students is there any caste composition there how many of the Shudras were getting homeschooled? And secondly, can't uh, homeschooling help lower the dropout rates amongst girls even today in independent India?
0: The last question, uh, the answer to the last part of your question, uh, it should come from uh, a policymaker. I will not be able to address that. But uh, I have uh, shared in my slides the caste composition. I'll not be able to give you the caste composition, school-wise, but I have shared in my uh, tabulation the caste composition, uh, linguistic region-wise. I can also share with you the caste composition in every district of Madras Presidency. If you can leave me your email ID, I'll be able to share with you in 1822-25 what was the caste composition in the indigenous schools in every district of Madras Presidency.
2: I just want to confirm what uh, Professor Choudhury has said about his grandmother and mother being uh, educated at home. My own mother, I think she studied till fifth or sixth class, but I remember her reading the Times of India in nine, back in 1950. Theoretically, she has studied only fifth or sixth class, but she could read uh, the English newspapers. And I've, she's been reading it for the last 50 years. So. And of course, she has taught me English when I was in class 6. So, obviously, the teaching at home was definitely a major uh, affair. So far as families were concerned. Yeah.
0: Yes. This, ma'am. Was, a, this was a major component of our setup. Yeah, about our education. Societal
3: yes. setup. Thank you. I'm actually teaching history uh, to an IB school. And uh, we don't have a curriculum. So, we're researching. It's project-based. I've been researching. So the answer to Prashant's question was, by that time, uh, you know, India had several universities of higher learning. most of it was destroyed after, during the Islamic invasions. I mean, if you take Takshila and all, they were um, teaching about 64 subjects. Takshila, Dantapuri, vallabhi you know, all those institutions. They were teaching uh, they were institutions of higher le- universities of higher learning to which people from across the world came to India to study. And they were destroyed during the Islamic uh, invasions. You know, many of the universities were destroyed. By 1800, they were all gone. Uh,
0: just to add on to what uh, Vidyaji just said now. See, uh, Prashant, you might have heard the name of uh, William Jones. William Jones was a very famous Indologist. He was a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of India in the times of Warren Hastings. And he founded the Asiatic Society of Bengal, which is still there in Kolkata, Asiatic Society. So, this William Jones goes to a place called Nadia. Nadia is a district in West Bengal, South Bengal. Nadia is the place from where Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came, Navadvipa. So, he goes to Nadia and he finds there is a thriving university. In the, uh, this is late 18th century. He finds a thriving university with 1,500 scholars and 5,000 pupils. And they were all studying gratuitously. And he calls it a university. So he, universities and this university at Nadia had students coming from many, several parts of India. You had a similar higher academic enterprise in Varanasi. I believe it was there in Kanchipuram, Ujjain, many, many other places of India. And these universities survived till almost 1800s. Till the, you know, once the British colonial rule started spreading its tentacles, and the local support revenue arrangements were taken off, they collapsed. There was nothing that the teachers could earn from to support their livelihood or support the students. And these all collapsed. In fact, the rise of navadvipa has been in the post-Nalanda period. After the collapse of Nalanda, Navadvipa rose. And Navadvipa is also famous for another thing. Uh, navadvipa is famous for Navvyanaya. New logic. So there is much, much to learn. Unfortunately, our textbooks do not speak about this. Our students in schools do not get to know or learn about it. But there is so much that...
1: uh... It's not just about staff and it's not just about the tax system. There is something very insidious that we see happening. And we see that our traditional indigenous schools have been deliberately broken. And the other communities have been favored in the education system. And their traditions have continued to be, like Sunday school and all that, have, have continued to be kept. So what are your thoughts in it? Can you just shed a little light on this? To to add to that, there is another question that did the British deliberately convert the Brahmins into in English education?
0: The British... Uh, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the British needed people to act as their agents and they were a very elitist uh, system in England. So they obviously took uh, care for the upper echelons of the society, the writing class, and the Brahmins. They were the first to motivate them and take into their jobs uh, so much so that I think by 1890s, uh, uh, more than 90% of the Indian officials in the British government were all Brahmins. Now, uh, you see the colonial policy Was no favorable policy to India. And uh, Will Duran writes that colonialism has been, uh, well, the Islamic invasion has been the bloodiest thing, Islamic invasion of India has been the bloodiest uh, thing that has ever happened in human history. So the colonial thing has deprived India, deprived India. Of its civilizational glory. There is no going back on that. And when the British came up with the system, there has been a favoritism to certain communities, and that is very clearly visible from the community participation that I showed between 1880 and 1935. And uh, to the best of uh, you, see, there were several factors going on, but This dismantling the traditional fiscal arrangement, which supported our temples, which supported the local village panchayat, the the local village pharmacology, irrigation and all that, this played havoc uh, and diverting of food grains, resulting in famines. Famines were something that were not known in India. Even though we have had droughts, we have not had famines. And the first great famine, we have the Battle of Plassey in 1757. Between 1769 and 1773, we have the Great Famine of Bengal, where a third of the population perishes. And what do we expect the people to do? So we were in a very difficult state. And we could not uh, fight the battle appropriately in the initial years. But later, I would say that we grouped up. And under uh, the enterprise of great national leaders, uh, we did bring a collapse to the mammoth vehicle of colonialism successfully and dismantled the empire.